We are continuing in the book of Habakkuk this morning, so if you want to turn there, we'll be in the second part of chapter 2. It's page 833 in your Pew Bible, or you can follow along um, through our app, the Brentwood Bible app or the Version Bible app. We'll all get you to the Scriptures. But last week, um, we saw the first part of the second response between God and Habakkuk. So Habakkuk's asking questions, and it's this back and forth between him and God. Um, and Habakkuk asked, like, how can you judge us Judge us with the Babylonians? They're more evil than we are. And so last week we saw God's first response, um, and we saw that God will bring, bring justice, and it won't be late. It will arrive exactly when God plans for it to arrive. And then almost hiding in the middle of all of those verses was a verse of hope, right? The righteous will live by faith. And this verse was the center of Habakkuk, and it shows us, I think, how to be counted with God when our time for judgment comes. And in addition to that, we trace that verse all the way into Romans and into the Reformation and how this verse seemingly hiding in the middle of Habakkuk is the center of Christianity. Um, and so it makes a huge impact. And so today we're going to the second half of God's response to Habakkuk. And remember, his question was, how can you use the Babylonians to bring justice to the Israelites? And so this is where we see the real answer to that. Um, basically, God's going to say they're going to have their turn. And so we're going to see God get very specific on actions and consequences in this section. And so we're going to read it together, and then we'll work through it from there. But we're going to start in verse 6 of chapter 2, and we're going to just read through the end of the chapter. And so just listen um, along with me or read along with me. It says, um, when all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him, they will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his, how much longer, and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly rise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoil for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house, to place his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall, and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who gives his neighbor drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You'll be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup and the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands and cities and all who live in, him, in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, the teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. 
So this section, as we read, consists of five woes. Now, I don't know, we don't go around saying woe, not in this context anymore. We don't use the word woe really anymore. Um, And so what is a woe exactly? Well, think of it as a warning. It's a warning of something, and it usually consists of two different parts. There's a declaration of something that's wrong, and then, which would be the action, and then the pronouncement of the impending judgment, the consequence for whatever the action was. And so all of these woes that we are reading are directed at the Babylonians specifically. Um, But it isn't just for them. God is using the Babylonians as an object lesson, meaning these woes, these warnings, and most that we see in Scripture, Jesus actually uses this same thing in the Gospels when he's talking to the Pharisees. Like, woe is other things, and so you can look those up later. But they're meant to warn, but also to teach. And so here God is teaching the difference between what we saw last week, living by faith and living for yourself. And so as we go through these, we're going to kind of work through them, but you might find that some of these woes or warnings apply to you more than others. But I think no matter how much we want to deny it, all of us have hints of these in our lives. And so the challenge for us will be to see past the extreme case of the Babylonians because you're going to say in your brain, well, I'm not a warring nation who's going around conquering people um, and killing them and gathering them up and taking their lands and all of this stuff. At least I don't think any of you are doing that. Um, and so we've got to shift from that to how these concepts, how these same things show up in our lives. And so that's the challenge for us today because they serve for a warning to us. So we're going to take these one at a time. We'll look at the warning for the actions, the actual actions. Then we'll look at the consequences. Then we'll look at how we might do the same thing and how that is dangerous for us, and then how we can overcome that or avoid those consequences through faith. And so we're going to do that for each one. If you counted, and I told you there's five of these, um, and so we're going to go pretty quickly through these, but I believe in you guys you're smart, you're capable, you take, most of you take good notes, so we're just going to go through one at a time and kind of see where we're at. So first is the warning to the stealer. This is verses 6 and 7. Woe to him who amasses what is not his and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Um, and so that's the action. So the Babylonians built their empire by conquering other nations and taking whatever they wanted from them. Now, we don't often think of what's happening when somebody gets conquered, um, but basically it's stealing, right? You had it, I wanted it, so I took it from you because I could. That's stealing, right? It belonged to you, but I wanted it, so I took it. And so even on a grand scale, right, you had a nation, you had land, you had all of this stuff, And I wanted it, so I conquered you, and I took it. And then after they got conquered, it was on a smaller scale. This person has these things, and we want them, so we'll just take them. And So in addition to that, they're also exploiting people by charging them a large amount for things. Think of this as like paying for protection, paying for food, paying for land. Right now, since it belongs to me, even though it used to belong to you, I stole it. It belongs to me, so now you have to pay me to use it. Right? So that's what they're doing. They're exploiting them. And so what does God say are the consequences for them? Well, he warns them that at some point, the people you have stolen from, the people you are exploiting, will wake up. 
And when they wake up, they will reverse the situation and they will conquer you and they will steal what you have and demand payment from you. So essentially, the situation will be reversed. It's basically what goes around comes around situation. What you've done to them is going to happen to you, what you did to them. And so for us in today's world, it makes me think of things like um, payday loans and predatory lenders, or maybe even a sketchy pawn shop where they're just kind of taking your stuff um, and kind of taking advantage of you in that. And so what's really happening here is they're taking advantage of other people's misfortune and they're making money off of us, off of it. Now, I don't think any of us are engaged in those kinds of things, um, but I also don't know that for sure. Um, but how do we actually do this if we're not like doing that specifically? I think sometimes if you're trying to get to the top of your profession or you're trying to get to the top of your office or even the top of who's in charge in your house, sometimes you do whatever it takes. Sometimes you cut corners. Sometimes you step on people. Sometimes you take credit for somebody else's work, right? Hey, they're not here. Nobody's going to know. I can just say I did it and take advantage of whatever's happening to them, and they miss the meeting, so I can steal their work, steal their glory, and take credit for it, and nobody's going to know. But I think one of the things we do is similar to this is holding something over somebody's head, right? We'll say things like this. Remember when you said this, or you did this to me, and like you made me really angry, um, and you know, classic example is your wife tries on something and she asks you if it makes her look fat and you accidentally say yes, even though you know you're not supposed to, right? Don't, if you don't know that, now you know, don't ever say that. Um, but in, if you do, things like that always seem to come back. Remember when you told me I was a little bigger than I thought when I tried that on? So as a result of that, you kind of hold that over somebody's head. And that's not the only example. Um, there's other one of those. So what happens as a result of that, we say, well, now you have to do this to make up for that. And, or you have to pay it off. You have to make up for it. And so to make up for what you did or what you said, you have to do all of these things for me. Right? And so holding something over somebody's head and kind of making them do all of these things to please you or to pay off what they did to you is, I think, similar to this. Right? You're taking advantage of them to get what you want to pay back what was taken for you. And so the danger for us in that, I think, is this leads to um, selfishness. It essentially puts us at the center of the universe, right, if you're doing this. I'm at the center. I can have whatever I want. I can take whatever I want. I can demand of whatever I want from other people. And so we become demanding. We use other people for our purposes. And eventually, I think if you do that, that leads to a feeling and actions of superiority, that we are better than other people. And so we may say something like, well, if they were as smart as me or as successful as me, they wouldn't be in a position for me to take advantage of them. So it's really their fault that I'm able to do this. Or it leads to dishonesty, that we are careless or we have little value for the truth, right? The truth doesn't really matter. What matters is I get what I want. And so I can tell little white lies or stretch the tooth or leave things out to get what I want in this situation. And so how do we do this? How do we live by faith? How do we get away from this? Well, I think we all know you can't or you shouldn't steal, 
or take advantage of your fellow image bearers, right? Those who are image bearers in Christ. And we're going to come back to that later, so I'm just going to give you a little bit. So think about how we treat people like the homeless and how we view them and how we think about them and how we treat them and how we react to them. Are we taking advantage of them? Are we ignoring them? Do we think we're better than them? Or maybe people who just made a mistake, right? Did you make them, somebody made a mistake and you're like, oh, there's a loophole. And so I can take advantage of that and move forward. So that's warning against stealing. Next, we have the warning to the self-protector. This is verses 9 through 11. Uh, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. And so the Babylonians were making money dishonestly. This seems to be after they had conquered someone. So this is similar to the first one that we just talked about. But here, the real issue is the purpose for their dishonest gains. They're making money dishonestly in order to be safe from anything that could hurt them or from any disaster, right? This is placing your nest up high like an eagle um, to be safe from anything that comes. And there are some who believe this specific section is referring to how they built their capital city um, and the palace. So in case you didn't know, um, when they built the palace in the middle of the capital city, um, the palace had a wall around it and the wall was 137 feet thick. Um, so it seems a little excessive to me, um, but when you're building something and you're trying to protect yourself from everyone else and everything else, you're going to build a huge, thick wall. And so I think that's what they're talking about, is trying to protect yourself and build this protection around you so I can be safe no matter what comes against me. And so instead of planning glory for themselves by building beautiful, large, intimidating buildings to keep them safe, they were actually planning their own shame, right? When it all fell down, when it all collapsed, then all of their efforts to protect themselves, they couldn't succeed. It wouldn't actually work. In addition to that, it says they're sinning against themselves, right? This word carries the meaning of forfeit. It's related to the Hebrew word for sin and means missing the target, so instead of protecting themselves from all harm, they were missing the mark in shame by not escaping ruin and entrusting themselves to do it. And then what they were doing, even if all the people that they took advantage of died, what does it say? The stones and the woodwork would be witnesses against them. Which sounds a little strange, but we kind of have an understanding of this concept. There's a, a famous poem called The Telltale Heart. Um, most of you have read it or heard of it. Um, essentially, the guy kills somebody, he buries them under the floor, and when they come to looking, he hears the heart from under the floor, like, beating. And so he hears it again and again and again. But we would do this similar thing, maybe not in that way, but I think we all have objects that when we see them, they're attached to a certain memory. Right? When you see this thing, you remember from this situation. So if you didn't hear... Um, Kathy and two of our boys were in a car accident um, last Sunday. Everybody's okay. Now it's just insurance and dealing with all of that stuff. But what happened is the back of the van got smashed in and they were going to the beach. So I drove down there to help them out. And so I pulled all of these smashed sand toys out of the back of the van. And so for me, for a long time, whenever I see these sand toys, I'm going to remember the accident. Right? It's a witness of what happened. And that's what he's saying to the Babylonians. Even if all of the people that you conquered have died and none of them exist, the wood that you stole from them, 
the things that you stole from them to build this, they will be a witness against you. When people see them, they're going to remember what you did and how you treated them and how you took advantage of them and how you dishonestly took what they had. And so we have these objects as reminders that even if everything goes away, the object will be a witness against them. And again, I hope none of us are gaining money or doing things dishonestly. But I think the second part of this is actually more likely for us, right? Seeking to protect ourselves from anything that could hurt us. We do this financially. I need to save this much money. I need to have this much in savings. I need to have this much for retirement. I need this much insurance, and then I'll be okay. No matter what happens, I'll be able to recover or withstand it. Or materially, I need a house. I need a gate. I need an electronic garage door. I need extra locks on my house so that I can be safe and protect myself from everybody else out there. Or maybe even emotionally, you keep your guard up. You don't talk about your personal life. You don't let people into your life to help you. And so you're protecting yourself emotionally from other people. The concept behind this is I can have enough, I can do enough, I can protect enough to be safe no matter what comes. And yes, there is a balance between saving and being prepared and protecting yourself, um, and, but not going as far to say, I am responsible for all of that. I can overcome that. I can prepare for that. I don't need anybody's help to be able to do that, including God, right? That's what we're talking about here. Yes, you should have some savings. Yes, you should lock your doors. Yes, you should do things like that. I'm, we're not saying you shouldn't do any of those, but there's a point where it becomes excessive, or it becomes obsessive, and that's all you think about of trying to protect yourself. So you're really trusting in yourself over trusting in God, which is really the danger for us, right? Trusting in ourselves, right? Trusting that I have earned and I have collected enough money to overcome any setbacks. I trust that I have built enough walls physically and emotionally to protect myself from whatever comes. All of this is finding security either in yourself or in the stuff that you have, right? So how do, we, how, do we, how do we battle against that? How do we find our security in Christ and not just in ourselves or in our stuff, right? When we are in Christ, we are secure. We are sealed by His Spirit. That means no matter what comes, we are with Christ in our eternal life, and standing in God is secure. Nothing can take it away, no disaster, no economic downturn, no emotional trauma, nothing. We are secure in Christ. In addition to that, being in Christ gives us everything that we need to handle all of the situations that we will encounter on earth. He is our salvation, He is our counselor, He is our treasure. He is our safety. He is our refuge. All of those things are true. So if we are in him, we are protected. We are safe. We can trust in him. So next we have the warning to the violent builder. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. See, the Babylonians built their city, and I think we know this because we've talked about it all along the way, with bloodshed and built their towns by treating other people badly. Um, the term we would use for something like this would be like blood money, right? You gained this, you earned this by 
shedding somebody else's blood, either killing them or injuring them and taking it from them. And so their empire was built on the suffering of other people, even shedding their blood through conquering, through slavery, and through exploitation. But the consequences are, right, it says they're only fueling the fire. And there's a couple of ways that you can look at fueling the fire. One is they are not going to escape the fire of judgment. Um, if you read any other scripture or any verses around kind of what happens at the end, there seems to be a fire that purifies things and judges people, and you have to come through the other side uh, to be proved worthy. And so that's one side of it. But the other side is they're not really going to make, in all of this work that they're doing, and all of this conquering, and all of this building, and all of this working, they're not really going to make anything that lasts. They're only keeping the fire going. And the fire is never satisfied. Right? If you build a fire, if you make a fire, unless you keep feeding it, it dies. And so that's what he's basically saying is you're doing all of this stuff and you're just feeding the fire. You're just keeping it going. You're not actually making any progress. You're not actually doing anything that lasts. And so that's what he's saying. It never ends. They are exhausting themselves for nothing is what he basically says. And again, as we apply this and see how it applies to us, I'm hopeful that none of us are using violence to build something. I'm hopefully that is also true. But I think, again, it's the second part that I think we need to be conscious of, right? Of working only to fuel the fire and thinking we're doing great things, but to realize we're doing it all for nothing. When I was growing up, um, probably early 90s, there was this set of competing bumper stickers. Um, and one of them was... Um, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? And so that was, hey, if whoever has the most stuff at the end, that's who wins the war. Whoever has the most, this was usually, I grew up in East Texas, so this was usually on like the biggest trucks in town um, with huge wheels and all of this extra stuff on it. So it's usually a huge truck that has this, right? So whoever has the most toys, they win life. And then there was this competing one that came out a few months later that says, he who dies with the most toys still dies, right? And so there was this competing idea that no matter how many toys you had, you might think you're winning, but you're still going to die, and all those toys are going to go to somebody else. You're not really collecting anything. You're not really getting anything that lasts. That's the concept we're talking about here, is no matter how much you pile up, no matter how much you save, no matter how protected you think you are, no matter how much you're doing, in the end, Whatever we do on earth or in our earthly things and earthly possessions, it's really nothing, right? You can't take it with you. And so the question for us is, what are you, waking, work, what are you working for? Are you working to make a name for yourself? Are you working for security? Are you working for fulfillment? Are you working for things that will last? Or are we just fueling the fire? Right? Are you saying, well, I have to work because I have bills to pay, I have to pay my rent, and I've got kids who are going to go to college, and I have to pay for this, 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 and this, and I have to eat, and I, all of these things. And so you're just working or collecting money so that you can pay those bills. You're just doing one thing after another to make it through. And so what we need to do is to remember that whatever we work for is not going to last. It's only temporary. Yes, we should still work hard. I'm not saying we shouldn't. 
But remember what lasts, which helps us keep things in perspective. Remember what is important. And here we get the other side pretty, pretty clearly um, in the last verse of this section, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as water covers the sea. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. That's what happens at the end. So the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. Not mine. Not yours. Not Brentwood Bible. God's. God's glory is what remains at the end. And the image he gives us is that God's glory comes almost like a flood. And it floods the whole earth. And if God's glory comes like a flood and it covers the whole earth, that means everything else will be lost in the flood. Everything and everyone who is hostile to God or seeks their own glory will be washed away. It will all disappear. When the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, everything else will be swallowed up. And so the call for us is to seek God's glory by serving him, by submitting to him, by being obedient to him, and by worshiping him. Next, we have the warning to the deceiver. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath, and even making them drunk in order to look on their nakedness. And so Babylon had deceived people, especially by getting them drunk and then taking advantage of them in multiple different ways. Um, so this one was wrapped up in alcoholism, in lust, in degradation, and in humiliation. And one of the reasons you treat somebody this way is to feel or to prove or to make yourself think that you are superior to them. Right? You're not really treating them like people, but you're treating them like objects to be used for whatever you desire. And there's also a line in here about Lebanon and the destruction of Lebanon. And so what's happening here with that and the animals is Lebanon was known for having an enormous lush forest. And so basically the Babylonians went through and cut down all the trees um, to build their city. And in addition to that, they killed all of the animals. So that's where this verse in there um, comes from, that they did all of this to build their cities. And so the consequences for them were, instead of being superior they would be the ones to be disgraced. The cup that they were forcing others to drink would end up in their hand. And they will drink a cup from the Lord that will bring them to disgrace. And this reference to the cup from the Lord all throughout Scripture is a reference to God's judgment. Right, we see this all throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets. We see a cup poured out or someone drinking a cup um, a lot of times it talks about drinking the cup to the dregs. That means through the little things that are at the bottom of the cup after you drink all of the liquid. They're going to drink all of it. And so the Babylonians are going to experience God's judgment and not in a good way. They will get back what they had been given, namely humiliation and disgrace. All their efforts to look superior would come crashing down. And in the end, they would found, be found to be lesser, to be weak, and to be conquered. The one who got others drunk 
will become the drunk stumbling around with no self-control and no power. That's what he says will happen to them. And while we might not all consciously say, I want people to think I'm superior. I want people to think I'm better than them. I think we do all have things we want people to think about us, right? To think I'm a good parent or a good grandparent or I'm a hard worker or I'm smart or I'm in the know or I'm a good Christian or I'm successful. And so I think it's possible for us to make things look like or to present a version of yourselves that makes people think that about you. We hide the things that make us look bad, right? We leave things out of our stories. We tell little white lies to make ourselves look better. We see this a lot, I think, these days on social media, right? People are presenting to you only what they want you to see. It's a version of yourself or a version of someone else that they want people to see. And so you're controlling the way people see you and think about you. Sometimes we use that to feel superior, to feel better. So we think we're better than others. We talked about this a lot a couple of weeks ago when we talked about judging and comparing to other people. So if you're interested in picking up that part of it, I believe it was August 1st that you can go back and listen to that. It's helpful in this as well. And so the danger for us in this is using others, deceiving others, lying to others. Thinking we are better than someone means basically we're devaluing them. There is something in them that we think is lesser than us. Now these may be our enemies or just people we disagree with. Maybe it's somebody you disagree with politically and they're on the other side of the aisle. Do you think they're lesser than you because they have different political opinions? And is that true in the way you talk about them? In the way you think about them? In the way you interact with them? Or maybe on gender issues, you completely disagree with somebody. Do you think that makes them a lesser person? Or you treat them differently because of that? Or this one is also challenging on issues of faith. Somebody that disagrees with how you get to heaven. Or if you can get to heaven. Do we still see them as people? Do we still see them as valuable? Do we treat them as lesser? Do we think of them as lesser? Or the homeless or the immigrant. I mean, we can go on and on and on of people or groups that we think we are superior to. And we may never say that. But I think sometimes in our actions, in our words, in the way we talk about people and think about people, we're basically thinking of them as less than human, right? As objects. So all of the people in all of those groups and the ones that we think about are all still image bearers, people who are made by God in his image. They are just as valuable as you are in God's eyes. Now, you can try to argue, hey, they're disobeying God or they're going against his commandments, but this is where the message of the gospel really comes in. The gospel says we're all sinners, every single one of us. It's only by God's grace and the gift of faith that any of us are saved, any of us. And so no one is better than any other. We are all sinners in rebellion against God. 
Now, some of us have received God's grace and the gift of faith, and that's good news. But the gospel itself reminds us that just because you've received the gift of faith and God's grace also doesn't make you better than anybody else. It should make us thankful and grateful that we were evil, that we were wicked, that we were in rebellion, but we were saved. And so as we live this out, we treat everyone with dignity as fellow image bearers in Christ, even online, right? Where it's really easy to sit behind a keyboard because you're not seeing the actual person. And we can say things or do things that we wouldn't normally do to somebody face-to-face. And then the challenge, I think, for us also is where you can... Where it's wise, I'm not saying you have to go unload all of your junk or all of your struggles anywhere, but especially in the context of church where we're in this together, we're walking together, we're trying to help each other grow and serve Christ. Reveal the real you. Not to make people say, oh, look at how real and authentic they are. They're sharing all of their struggles but so that we can reveal the truth and we can see how people really are living, how people are struggling, how people are being successful, how things are happening, so that we can encourage one another. We can lift one another up with what we see in each other. Because every time I've seen this done, somebody will say, well, I've really been struggling with this, and then three other people say, oh yeah, me too. Right? So usually our struggles aren't unique to us. And so we think we're suffering or struggling on our own, but we're not. But it's not until you talk about things and bring them up and say those things to other people that somebody says, oh, yeah, I just went through that and this is how I got through. Right? To reveal the real, the real us. And then we get to the warning to the idolater. So this is the last one. It's verses 18 through 20. I'm going to read this whole section. It says, what use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It's only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence." The problem here is worshiping idols. And he goes through the foolishness of worshiping idols. Excuse me. And as he explains kind of the foolishness of um, idols, to us it seems pretty obvious that you shouldn't do that. Right? When you create something and then you try to worship it or you tell it to talk to you or teach you or come alive, just like, that's not going to happen. This seems really ridiculous. But people still do it. We still have idols. So nothing you, and the concept behind this is that nothing you can create can actually become greater than you. It's limited by your knowledge and your ability. And asking it to wake up and asking it to come alive seems ridiculous. He also calls it a teacher of lies. It cannot speak. It cannot teach. It looks really good. It's covered in gold and all of these ornate things. But it can't do anything. It isn't alive. 
And the consequence for that is those who trust in silent idols who can't speak will be silent before God. So the implication is that God would take care of Babylon in his sovereign justice and he would give everyone what they deserved. And now Habakkuk and the Israelites didn't have to worry about what God was going to do or what was going to happen to the Babylonians, but he had it covered. And if you've been listening or if you like tuned out three woes ago because you're like, I don't know that any of these actually apply to me or I don't really do any of these things. Um, first, I would argue you probably do those more than you realize. Um, but secondly, you should really pay attention to this one then. This is the one I think everyone struggles with. Not just us, but I think for all time, this has been a struggle, and I think it will be a struggle forever until God returns. Because our minds and our hearts and our desires are much weaker than they need to be to completely do away with idolatry. And now you may say, well, I haven't really made any idols. I don't have anything sitting on the shelf at my house that I pray to or ask to teach me or ask to come alive. I didn't carve anything or make it out of gold. That may be true. But there's a line from John Calvin that he wrote, and I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but in that he talks about our hearts as idol factories. Right? What our hearts do is they just create idol after idol after idol after idol. Something to worship, something to follow, something to trust in over and over and over again. And you know what? He was right. He was right. That means we can make idols out of just about anything. For example, I think all of the other woes in this passage are born out of this one. Right? Because in those other things... There was an idol of something that they were trying to achieve, that they were trying to serve, that they were trying to accomplish that led them to be deceiving, that led them to be violent, that led them to build things, that led them to take advantage of others. All of the other ones are built out of this one. Like the idol of self. I deserve to get what I want. I'm better than others, so they need to get out of my way or I'll run them over or treat them as lesser to get what I want. Or the idol of control. I can bring out the outcomes I want. I can get the job I want. I can get the promotion I want. I wrote this one just so I could laugh at it. I can make my kids do what I want. Um, I can plan out my life and where I want to be and I can make it happen. I can control all of those things and get where I want to go. The idol of security. I can protect myself. I can be prepared, whatever may come. I can have enough money. I can have enough insurance. I can have enough stuff. I can have enough locks. I can have enough friends that I'll be fine no matter what happens. The idol of prosperity. I'll be successful. I'll be rich. I'll be able to buy whatever I want. People will think I'm great. People will think I'm successful. I'll be a leader in my field. People will look up to me. The idol of retirement. I've worked hard. I deserve to take it easy. I deserve to rest. Let the younger people do all the work. The idol of church or church growth. This is my church. I get to decide what happens in it and who.
large numbers of people come to Christ, we can fill up the building. Now the reality is, in themselves, none of the things I just listed are actually inherently bad. It's not bad to work hard. It's not bad to be successful. It's not bad to want your church to be full. It's not, none of those things inherently are bad in themselves. The problem comes when we take something that should be neutral and we make it ultimate. See, when you make one of these things ultimate, then you do whatever it takes to get it and to keep it. And so as a result of that, you do things you normally wouldn't do. You treat people in ways you normally wouldn't treat them. You say things that you wouldn't normally say. And so the problem isn't the thing. The problem is when you try to get that thing so much that it affects how you do everything else. And so the, the question I had just as I was thinking about this is, well then, if we have all of these idols and our hearts are idol factories and we just keep making one after another after another after another, then how do we identify them? How do we know what they are for us? Well, a couple of things. I think if there's something in your life that you think you can't live without, that might be a good place to start. The other thing you might look at is, is there something that you get angry or frustrated about if you lose it or you can't get it? Right? For me, I know one of my idols that sneaks in all the time is the idol of control. I want to control things and make things happen and and when that doesn't happen you can ask my family. they may not know the reason but they know I get grumpy and I'm very easily frustrated when that's happening because things feel out of control and I want to get it back So if there's something like that where you get frustrated or you get angry or you get upset when it doesn't happen, that might be a good place to look for an idol. Because the danger in all of that is exchanging the truth, exchanging the security, exchanging the rest, exchanging the contentment, the trust, the security that can be found in Christ for a dead, mute, lying idol that can't actually help you with anything. Right? Why trust in something that's dead when you can trust in something that's alive and powerful? We're trading life and ultimate fulfillment for nothing. And so how do we live by faith? How do we attack this problem of idols? Well, we live by faith in God through Jesus and his sacrifice for us. He can sever the hold of our idols on our hearts and on our lives. He can give us all of the things that we're trying to get on our own. And like we see here, one day the whole earth will be silent in his presence. They'll realize that he, that God is who the Bible says he is. That he did send his son to die in our place on the cross. Jesus did take the punishment for our sins, for our rebellion. We realize God is in control, so we don't have to be. 
we realize God is powerful, so we don't have to feel powerless. We realize God is our rock, and he is our strong tower, and he is our refuge, so we can feel secure. We are completely loved, and we are complete in Christ and so we can overcome doubts about who we think we are or who we think we need to be or what we need to So the call for us is to shift from trusting in dead man-made idols to the living to shifting to trusting in the living God who rules the universe from his temple. He is eternal. He is holy. He is the sovereign one who reigns forever. And so for Habakkuk, the message is, God is not indifferent to sin. He doesn't ignore suffering. He is not asleep. He is not delaying. He is in control. And in his perfect timing, he will accomplish his purposes for us and for all humanity. And so what we need to do is we need to trust And we need to wait in humble silence for what God is going to do. We trust and we wait for his glory to be revealed in our life and in the world around us. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for your word that sometimes gives us challenging messages and, and woes and warnings. I pray that you would help us to be mindful of things, that you would help us to remember that there are warnings, there are things that we shouldn't be doing that are dangerous for us, that lead us off the path of following you, of trusting in you, of giving everything over to you. So God, I pray that as we, as we leave here, as we think about this, as we reflect on this, that we will think of the places, think of the things that we are trusting in, the things we are trying to accomplish on our own, the things we're trying to do or become that make us think we'll be of worth, that will make us think we'll be of value. But to remember that we have value in you. No matter what we've done, no matter how ugly or terrible or sad or depressing it may be you love us and you sent your son for us so that we could have life so help us to trust in you to seek you and to allow your spirit to show us where we're trusting in other things so that we can trust in you above all things God, help us to love you and to seek you in your name i pray